Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to my podcast, Second Chart. My name is Raphael Rowe and my guest today is the artist Gary Mansfield. Now, you may not have heard of him, but eminent artists like Tracy Emin and Sarah Lucas have. That's because he befriended them when he was in prison, serving 14 years for drug trafficking. Sometimes the best stories come from those you know very little about until you listen to what they have to say. Gary, welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. I don't know very much about you. What I do know is that you were inside with my co-defendant, Michael, at one point. You did some time for drugs, and I don't know the ins and outs of that, and that you are a, a fine artist, and by that I mean a painter. That might not be the right way to describe it, but you're no longer in prison. So... Why did you contact me and want to share your story on my podcast? Let's start there. Well, because of the the grounding of your podcast, you know, being everyone having a second chance, I've completely seen my second chance in life, thanks to art itself. In the mid-90s, I was arrested for uh, £4.2 million worth of Class A drugs. Um, and it wasn't supposed to be Class A drugs. It was supposed to be fake clothing. But I got set up by a drugs gang, which is a, a whole different story. But they, they put the drugs in there and I was going to deliver what I thought was fake clothing. Turns out to be a hell of a lot of drugs. Fast forward, I got 14 years in prison. And I'd been a criminal all of my life. Um, bearing in mind, I was only 26 at the time. So, you know, I'd been sort of my first arrest was at 13 and progressively worked up the ladder, if you like, until my arrest at 26. So, yeah, I've, I've gone to prison. I've I've got to meet, you know, new people. And you know yourself, there's some lovely guys in prison, but there's also a lot of not nice in, nice guys in prison. And I wanted, at that point, to to sort of come up, come away from crime. I'd seen how I'd upset my family with my arrest. I'd sort of pulled them apart, you know. And I got 14 years in jail and I was determined, knowing that I would probably do seven, I was determined to come out a different guy that, than I went in. So like a lot of guys, I was expecting to do a trade or something like that. But I thought of getting into computers because computers, I know it sounds a bit strange to say now, but computers were starting to sort of kick off then, you know, um, in the in the mid 90s, you know, that was obviously going to be the thing to do. And you had to wait to get on the list for the computer class. But if you was in education already, you could sort of jump up a little bit, you know. So there was a few different classes in the education block. One of them was art. And that was always the easy class at school. You know, you could you could jump on there 
and sort of do nothing, you know, and just bide your time. So I thought that would do until the computer class comes up, which is where I met your co-defendant, Michael, who, great, absolutely great guy, good good fun and, and good good to spend your time with. But the art shooter was exactly the same. He was a, he was a great guy. Um, he was really eager to, to get the guys to get involved with art and um, sort of, if anything, he just wanted them to get involved with something to bide their time while they were in, you know. Um, but he was an amazing tutor. And I just found, I'd never done art before, but I found that I'd had this sort of knack for it, you know. And with me at the time, um, I'm sure you went through similar feelings yourself, you know, feeling that you had no worth and, you know, you was a disappointment and all of those sort of feelings. I had this little bit of um, acknowledgement from him saying, like, you know, you've you've done something here. I was like a little boy being praised by his teacher at school, you know. So I sort of wanted to try harder for him, for me. And then I just sort of fell in love with art. And at the time, there was a an exhibition. I don't know if you're aware of it, called Sensations, which is where um, Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin sort of all come to prominence in the, in the mid-90s. And that was on. And that was a sort of art which... A lot of people would say that anyone can do, you know, cutting a shark in half and, you know, making a making an unmade bed, if you like, you know. And I was poo-pooing that, that type of art because I, by this time I'd fallen in love with art and I thought, well, I've still got like five years left. I can uh, possibly even get a degree in that time, you know. But then I'd found this sort of throwaway art, which is, is how I described it. Um, and the tutor gave me a... Um, the catalogue from the exhibition, like like the accompanying book. And she said, well, read that and then sort of slag it off, you know, like I'm sort of slagging it off without any knowledge of it, apart from visual, you know. So I took it back to my cell and inside it was a postcard that she was using as a um, bookmark. And on this postcard, Raphael, was a, it was just a, um, a, a household colander with nuts and bolts through each hole. And I'd already seen this card and I said to her, like, how is that art? You know, it's a, it's a trip to B&Q and a £10 note, you know, that, and that's it. <laughs> and she said, well, read about it. And there was a little bit of text on the back. Well, it was by an artist, a female artist called Mona Hatoum. And she was, I always get this mixed up. I should, I should know. She was either Palestinian living in, um, who, who grew up in Lebanon or Lebanese that grew up in Palestine. One or the other, okay. But one of those, yeah. But she she was studying in the UK, and because of a regime change, which makes me think she's probably Palestinian living in Lebanon, because of a ch- regime change, she couldn't go back home. And she'd made this colander, which was like a dome over her country, and these the holes, what is normally in the colander, which were blocked with these nuts and bolts, were the entrances and exits, you know? And then when I've read that, I've gone like, fucking hell, she's made all of that with a colander and a bag of nuts and bolts, or pretty much with a trip to B&Q, you know. <laughs> and I, it sort of unlocked the way of looking at this sort of art. And then I, I, I looked at the, the other art in there with this new set of eyes, you know, which was non-critical, if you like, you know, or non-sceptical. And then I just fell in love with that type of art. In the back of the catalogue was all the artist names that took part. And there was nothing about these, this type of art in the, in the prison um, library. I mean, you know yourself, it was stuff like fucking Rolf Harris's cartoon time, you know, and that sort of thing, um, ironically, in the prison. <laughs> and But I, I contact, I wrote to these artists, and I'd already had a bit of luck. I wrote to a couple of artists previously, and they'd replied. But I wrote to these artists just asking for some information on their work and career. Let me pause you there because I want to go all the way back to where you started now and where pick up where you're at following your approach to these artists. You talked about getting in trouble with the law when you were 13. That was your first conviction. Let's go there, Gary. Let, 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 let's talk a little bit more about, you know, who you were before you become who you are to, to, today, took your second chance. What was the first thing you got in trouble with the police for and why was that? Why, at 13 years old, so young, did you end up getting in trouble with the law? Well, I was I was always a sort of little council estate tear away. I wasn't really a, a criminal from an early age. 
But we jumped over the school during the summer holidays. We jumped over the school playground or field, you know, and we we was playing football over there. One of the lads kicked the ball on the roof. We've gone up to get it. The skylight had been broken and it had a bit of wood over it. We pushed it aside. Two of the lads climbed in. I mean, as you can see, I'm not built for climbing. You know, Gary, Gary's indicating that he's a little <laughs> overweight. Yeah, I'm above average in the in the in the waist size. Um, yeah, so two of the um, normal size lads <laughs> jumped yeah, down. He wasn't that big no, when no, you were a was, kid, were you? Obviously, no. Two two of the lads jumped down. I stayed up top, and then the caretaker had seen us. The police turned up, done us for for trespassing well done us originally for attempted burglary which it it wasn't but in the end we got done for trespassing at court and as much as I shit myself when I was arrested all of my mates at school were were going oh you got nicked and I was going yeah yeah and and I like that little bit of sort of notoriety even though it was fake Mm. and I I did always prefer getting into trouble than not I like the thrill of of the chase if you like you know sort of banging on someone's door and they chase you. You know, there was always one of those on the estate who would come running out after you, you know. And I loved that. And that just sort of grew and grew, escalated while I was at school. I was a um, a pain in the arse at school. Um, and it just grew like that. And one of the things was my dad got, my mum and dad were separated. And my dad got a pub when I was like 15. And I didn't really know my dad. But then... He invited me to go and stay in the pub because I was being trouble at home. He invited me into the pub with grown-up troublemakers, you know. Like, he had the best intentions, but then I was getting to know, like, in, in the pub was, like, the it was like a meeting point for some of the ICF, you know. So I'd got in with them, even though I wasn't even into football. I liked to row, so... The ICF you know, being the intercity firm, this is... Yeah, the West Ham uh, hooligans, if you like, you So know. you grew up in the East End of London? Yeah, Dagenham... Essex, East London border, you know. Okay. So that's how you, you ended up getting... What what kind of criminal convictions do you have before the last one where you got 14 years for, for drugs? It ended up being just sort of fuggy sort of stuff. You know, I'm, I'm a sort of different person now to what I was then. It was just several criminal damages, several thefts. Started The violence started, you know, first of all, it'd be in a fray, like a group of us getting into trouble then it'd be the odd assault and then they escalated and escalated I went away originally when I was 18 for um I had a fight with three guys um and I got done for using CS gas and that comes under like a firearms thing because it's trigger um trigger operated and I got done for three ABH two GBH and a fire or you know like the firearms act I got a year for that and done six months and then it just escalated and escalated from there really how many prison sentences have you done? Oh, only two. I've done two the six sentences. months. And then um, I sort of cut, I stopped all of that. That was when I was 18. And I sort of stopped all of that. By the time I was 20, I stopped being involved with all that because I saw that it was just a waste of time, you know, being a pretty much a, a, fu- a nuisance. You know, that's, that's all I was really, was a nuisance. Then I started getting into the clothes in a bigger way. I was already working the nightclubs, because of my size and I was aggressive, I liked to, I liked to row, you know. I would be doing debt collecting and bodyguarding, door work, you know, I was working all over London in the clubs. That scene come in. The drug scene was there, you know, we was working in the rave scene since it started. Although, I, you know, I was never into drugs. I never had, never had a pill all the years I was working in that scene, you know. It weren't, drugs weren't my thing. You got involved in the clove the illegal clothes industry. I don't know what that is. And I suppose people listening don't know what that is. Just just talk me through, um, you know, let's speed this up. Just talk me through the moment that you thought you were getting a, a consignment of, of dodgy clothes, but ended up getting a consignment of, of cocaine. Is that really possible? Could you, someone as wise as you be, as naive as you was to, to get caught up in that way? Yeah, well, it, it's not quite as simple as as you visualize it in the mid 80s um clove brands started becoming prominent it was like pringle lacoste you know them sort of golfing and tennis clothing before that it was just clothes we bought from average shops all of a sudden that the clothes had a higher monetary value so people started faking them and at the time the labels used to get 
sewn on. They wasn't embroidered into the, the cloth as they are now. So it used to be an actual label, which is possibly, the Lacoste ones, for instance, were possibly as big as your thumb. And it was a, a little crocodile that got stitched on. And they come on big reels that was like uh, maybe the size, uh, maybe 12 inches wide and an inch, inch and a half deep. And they was quite heavy. And I'd seen them before. And I'd seen multiple reels of them. So they come in a big sort of drum, you know. Um, I'd seen them before with the guys who were manufacturing. So it didn't seem strange to me when I was taking these, because it was labels I was taking up north, up to Birmingham, not not the clothes itself. So they was in two holdalls and there was packaging within the bags. So it didn't seem any different for me. I mean, I've been working with these guys for about six months. Work, working doing what? So they were importing these fake labels that they, they, were that, manufacturing. they were manufacturing the fake labels that would be sewn onto the garment. No, they was manufacturing, they was buying in the garments, buying in the labels, and then they was making the fake T-shirts, you know, putting the labels onto the garments. Ah, and that I was see. Being, where, where were the, the garments and the fake labels coming from? They were being imported from another country. Wherever, yeah, where, yeah, I don't know where they was getting them from, but these guys were in Essex and they was all being sewn into the garments in Birmingham. And I was on my way to Liverpool to meet some friends. So they've said to me, would you drop these off there on your way? So they've offered me a couple of hundred quid to drop these um, labels off in Birmingham on the way. I figured, you know, like 200 quid. It's on, it's, Birmingham's on the, on the way to Liverpool, a half hour detour, and that sort of paid for a night out in Liverpool, you know. So, yeah, I've picked it pick their bags up, put them in my car. As I'm reversing out, all hell broke loose with armed police. And that's when you got nicked and discovered that what was actually in those bags was what? Heroin. How much? Uh, 50 kilos. So we've got to the police station and they said, this is Gary Mansfield. He's been arrested on being knowingly concerned in the importation of class A drugs, namely diamorphine. And... I generally turned around and said, what's diamorphine? Because I, I knew the word morphine, because that's what you get given if you're in pain. And she said, heroin. And then, bang. I've realised, and just then they're bringing the other guy in who got nicked as well. And he's the one who sort of made the introduction for me into these other guys. He's come walking into the police station. And I've seen him, and I've just, I wanted to kill him, you know. And I've run towards him. He's still handcuffed. He's got a copper by his side, he's handcuffed. I'm trying to get hold of him. And I've just had the cuffs taken off me at the desk. Yeah, so as I'm trying to get to him, I've had the coppers grabbing a hold of me. I mean, it felt like, remember when you was at swimming pool and like trying to run and you had that bit of resistance? That's what it felt like, first of all. I was just getting slowed down where I'd sort of had this tunnel vision where I was so angry. Um, yeah, I've got, and it turns out I've got one over my top, one round my waist, and I'm sort of half dragging one along with my leg, who's got me round the leg, you know. <laughs> and you um, were angry, obviously, with this guy because although he'd made the introduction, he'd got you involved in something you didn't realise you were getting involved in. Definitely not. And the thing is, I've had, I've had so many opportunities where people have said, oh, do you want to earn a few quid doing this? Or especially in the clubs, I always had people saying, do you want to serve the um, guys in the club who were serving up, like, who were selling the drugs. And I was like, drugs ain't me. And I'd always knocked it away. I knew it was easy money, but I was in a place, I'd found a place within this clothing where if I got arrested with a, a transit van full, it'd be unlucky for me to go and get three months in jail. So I'd found a little area where I could earn a good wage and the come down, if it ever happened, wasn't that great. So that's where I wanted to stay. What happened next? So you're nicked. You've now realised it's heroin and it's not fake clothing. You go to court, you plead guilty or not guilty. What happened next? No, I plead not guilty. And the thing is, I was I was involved with some... The friends I had out here at the time were very well-known criminals. And they was even saying to me, when you get in court, point the finger at him and say, that's the guy who got me involved, you know? And I was saying, well... I'm not going to do that. And they said, well, they got you involved without your consent. So they've more or less grasped me up by putting me in that situation. He went, you know, you can stand up in court. And, and I said, I can't, I just can't do it. He said, well, goodbye then. You know, you, you're going to do a lot of bird. 
So that was going through my mind while I was in the dock. And there was five people arrested, including me. One was the, the a guy they'd followed over from Holland who had the bags, or t- two guys. One was the guy who got me involved, and one was the top guy, this guy called Sid. So everyone was arrested. And when I've got in the dock, and they've said to me, is I've explained that this guy, Sid, and, and Sid wasn't his real name, by the way, but I've, I've explained that this guy, Sid, had got me involved. Um, he said he's Sid in this courtroom now. And I've looked over at the other guys who are um, on trial. I've looked over at this Sid, and he's put his head down. And I went, no. I, it was at that point I knew that I was going to jail. And he'd put his head down. I said, no, he's not here. And he looked straight up at his family and give a little fist pump and went, yes. And I just... Why did you feel the need to protect him? Because I couldn't stand... I've been a criminal all my life. And I, and, and to be honest, it sounds perfect, but I loved that life. I loved the, rom- the romance about it, you know, all the films and the books. I wanted to be a part of that. And I'm, as pathetic as it sounds, I was a part of that, you know, and, and I, I felt I was... Um, I was knocking about. But at that moment, you knew, Gary, that you would end up getting a very long sentence because this was a serious crime and you you had a way out, but you didn't want to be labelled a grass or you didn't want to... Yeah, well, pretty much it wasn't the thing to do. And the way I figured it, I lived by these rules. So then I fall by the rules because that was that so-called criminal code, which... I later found out is a complete load of bollocks. You know, when you when you get to it all, you know, no one believes in that. That the worst ones are the ones at the top. You know, that that they're, they're at the top for a reason because they're they're sort of you know getting rid of everyone below them. And I I, I just couldn't stand up. I, I didn't want. I had a good reputation. You know, I had a good name. I didn't want people to sort of go, even if even if these big London gangsters were saying it's all right, it's, it wasn't all right in my heart because that's the rules I lived by. I thought, you're right, this is going to get me out of jail. It'll save me a few years in jail. But I knew that in my heart, I'd be carrying that around with me for the rest of my life. You know, and I, I wasn't, I couldn't do that. It's it's such an important point because I think, you know, for those who are not caught up in that criminal fraternity or environment, the real criminal fraternity, I'm not talking about gangsters, I just mean crime in general and the loyalty that you think you have to your comrades in crime or, or co-defendants, et cetera, and all these people that kind of read about it or see it um, and they think it's such a, an admirable thing. And you've just hit the nail on the head by saying it doesn't really exist. You know, those at the top are at the top because they are the biggest grasses of them all or, or some way. So it's important that you, you delivered that message to people that they mustn't believe that myth. And although you have your own morals and values and couldn't bring yourself to do it when you later learned that that actually the existence of it means that you suffer and no one else suffers, but actually they would have turned around and made you suffer when you wouldn't have made them suffer, blah, blah, blah. So I think it's an important point that you make there, Gary, that people need to understand that this world of criminality, although on the surface and in movies it looks quite quite romantic and it's all about loyalty and I wouldn't. The reality is the majority do turn each other over and they will grasp as quickly as they possibly can to save their own skin. You were found guilty and sentenced to 14 years? Yeah, I was expecting 18 because it was, you know, it it was £4.2 million. It wasn't, you know, you, you can't pass that off as a bit of personal, you know. And I expected 18. Other people had got sort of, 20s and that that I'd heard of you know 18 20 I knew on the on the ladder of the five of us that were there I was second from bottom or I was either second or third from bottom with me and the other guy who brought it over from from Holland so I, I thought I'd get about 18 I got 14 and I was prepared for for doing nine so in my head I'd already Oh, I know it sounds a bit strange, but in my head, I'd already done two years because I was expecting to get out when I was 33. And now the judge gave me 14, which meant I'd done seven. Now I'm getting out when I'm 31. And I was, as I say, I was mentally prepared for it. So I've already done two years on on that day, you know. What did the others get? Three got not guilty. 
And the guy who brought it over, he got found guilty. He got 15. So just the two of you got sentenced. You, who didn't even really get very far because you put it into the back of the car, didn't even get in the car and were nicked and ended up getting 14 years. Let that be a lesson to anybody who wants to get caught up in the the world of drug trafficking. 14 years, went to prison here in the UK. Even though your mind was prepared for the length of time, that you were willing to do, you kind of accept, you went not guilty, got found guilty. Once you were found guilty, you accepted responsibility, did you? And just knuckled down and got on with your your sentence? Yeah, well, I mean, all I could do was, I mean, I had, for for a few years, I was just thinking about what I was going to do to the ones who got me into this. And it was screwing me. Like, every single night, I was thinking, I'm going to go out, when I get out, I'm going to find them. Well, I'm going to go and get them take them away. I knew where I was going to bury them. You know, all of that sort of crazy, crazy stuff that I had going out every single, not some nights, every single night I was getting it in my head. I'm going to take them away. I'm going to do this to them, do that to them, finish them off where I'm going to bury them. And I had everything planned and it was screwing me over screw. And I was, I told one of my friends one night, uh, one day, and he just went, You've got to get that out of your mind, mate. Said, this is going to be a hard sentence if you're going to take that attitude every single night, like torture yourself every night. And um, that was the best bit of advice because I, I did stop doing that. I wanted to get out of crime and I was looking at the people around me. And when I was hearing people saying things, you know, like when they're people again, like using little phrases, oh, he's one of your own and all these little bits and pieces where... I was hearing people speak and I thought, I don't want to sound like that. I don't want to be that. They sound like fucking idiots. I don't want to be that anymore, you know? And then I just started looking at my life, what it could have been. You know, my brother, we grew up on the same estate, obviously, you know, me and my brother. My brother's as straight as a die. So something went wrong. You know, we both had the same upbringing. We both had the same, we both went without as kids, you know, we had exactly the same upbringing, yet I went in one direction, he went in the other. So it was something to do with me. I can't blame it all on, you know, being coming from a, a one-parent family, you know, on a poor council estate. That That isn't good enough. Well, I understand that, and I suppose lots of other people understand that, because often people use that as an excuse, don't they? I myself grew up in a council estate, and nearly everybody around me led a law-abiding life. My life went in a completely different direction, and I was partly to blame for, for, for some of that. Where did you go to do your 14 years? And when I say, where did you go? I mean, when somebody gets 14 years for attempted distribution or what it, trafficking of heroin, you know, I don't suppose they go to an open prison. Where did you go to? And what was it like in prison for you with that kind of sentence over your head? Well, I went into Chelmsford first on remand. So there was a year in Chelmsford on remand. Then I went to Swellside which I was there, which is a, a, a Category B, high security on the Isle of Sheppey in Kent. Not a nice place. I remember it well. It's, it's not the nicest of places, is it? It's got quite a bad reputation. A lot of very hardcore prisoners there. <laughs> Raphael, I had a fight within five minutes of being on the wing. I was having a fight with two guys who, who wanted some tobacco off me. I said no. They come back. I said no. They come back again. I told them to fuck off. They come back and, again, tooled up, wanted to have a, within five minutes. I'm fighting with... And that's the reality, yeah. isn't it? That's the real reality of prison. With a couple of uh, addicts. Yeah, of course. I mean, I had a little hole in my side, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a big one. You know, it was the, the guy stabbed me with a pencil or something small. It only went in a little bit. It, the, you know, that, it was just a, a little small wound, but they was out the cell. They was gone. They didn't mess me about anymore and just sort of carried on from there. But yeah, within literally within five minutes... And was Swellside where you first picked up this this ability or this insight into art? Or did you leave Swellside, come back, or was it in another prison that you you discovered that art was something that could change your, your life? Yeah, it was in Swellside. That's where I, I wanted to sort of try and change. I went on to the art class, as I say, fell in love with art. And it's it's something it's a world away from from anything I'd ever done before, you know. And, and, and how do you manage that? How do you manage surviving? You've already talked about two people coming at you within minutes of being inside that particular prison because of its volatility. How do you navigate trying to keep yourself safe um, from attack or uh, people who want to take things from you? 
and focus on you know, educating yourself or, or changing your life, because there's always going to be a challenge in prison. You know, even when you don't want it, it will come at you and that can end up disrupting who you are and what you're trying to do. And the authorities don't see that. They often just see the, the negative side of it. Even if you stand there all day and get blue in the face trying to explain, hey, it wasn't your fault. You've been trying to do the right thing. But when two people come at you trying to take something, you've got to defend yourself. Otherwise, you'll be vulnerable throughout the rest of your sentence. So how did you manage that, Gary? Well, luckily, when I got there, I had my friends outside, new people in there. So I had a, not a welcoming party. That's a bit of an exaggeration. But there was people there who approached me and said, oh, I'm friends of so-and-so. They said you was coming. You know, here's a few bits and pieces. So I knew people there anyway. I knew people there that I'd known from the outside. I knew people there from Chelmsford Prison as well. And because the guys who um, were friends of friends there had a big reputation in the jail, I sort of went in under their umbrella, if you like, you know. And if you're sort of quite aggressive in your approach, you know, aggressive by nature or firm, if you like to call it that, that sort of because you're in that closed environment, your personality sort of, comes out and can be seen you know so if people think you're a a bit of a, a hard nut you sort of get left alone or confronted you know and I didn't get confronted too much and I'm I'm not a bad bloke either you know I'm always sort of laughing and joking and I sort of I've always got on well with people you know I'm, I've never been a sort of a, a bully or a, a a racist or anything like that you know so I've got no Nothing there. And I've worked a lot with travellers as well. And there was quite a few travellers there that were friends of friends or probably related to friends, you know. So that's how you coped and survived. But how would you describe prison for those, you know, when when you went in as an 18 year old or or, or as a teenager or got in trouble with the law? Some of your friends saw it as a bit of kudos. And we know those stories, don't we? We know that cliche where people start saying, oh, you've been to prison, you must be tough, etc, etc. But for those people who who hesitate and, and wonder what it's really like in prison and only those who have the lived experience that you and I do. How, how would you deliver that message to people who, who are trying to tell people that prison is not a nice place? And I'm not sort of saying, you know, oh, it's just violent, you know, but I'm talking about your insight, Gary. How would you describe prison, the reality of, of prison and the psychological challenges that, that you owe, you have to overcome even as a guilty man? Well, it is a, a bit of a sort of a roller coaster, as, as you're well aware. There is the camaraderie. You know, the, the, there are plus sides. There's, there's no denying it. I'm, well, it changed my life, as it did yours. You know, would, would we both be doing what we're doing if it wasn't for jail? So there can be positives come out of it if you're positive. If you go in and you're negative and you just want to carry on as you were, you're just going to come out as you were. You know, you've got to sort of sow your own seed, if you like, you know. but. Yeah, there's camaraderie in there with with your friends. If you choose the right friends, you know, it can be a a good positive place. But on the whole, man, it, you know, I mean, the people who get who get nicked are criminals, and they're all in one in one space. And yes, a lot of the guys are nice. It is a reflection of society, but condensed. And there is some horrible, nasty people. Not all of them. On the surface, you know, some of them could be quite respectable, quite normal people, but it's it's not a nice environment to be in. It's very negative. Um, I ruined my family for several years, which had an impact on me to this day. The thing of being cheated, um, like being so gripped onto these rules that I was following as a criminal and then realising that, that it was all a waste of time. And that that is how I sum up prison, is just a waste of time. I could have been a, a litter picker in you know, McDonald's going around picking up rubbish off the street, and I would have earned more than I ever did as a criminal, you know, in them seven years. It, it's just an absolute waste of time. It's just everything is negative. It's had a, an effect on me throughout it's messed up my mental health that I, I do sort of keep to myself a lot of the time as, as guys do. And yeah, it just is, is that it is just a waste of time. 
I, I like the fact that you say it was a waste of time, although you used the time constructively. But before we go on to talk about the artwork that you you do and, and how that kind of developed, you've mentioned a couple of times how going to prison really destroyed your relationship with your families. And you've just mentioned that it, it, it had an impact on on your mental health. At 26, were you married? Did you have kids? Um, and what do you mean that, that it had an impact on your relationship with your family? Well, luckily, I didn't have a family at the time or a wife or a you know, long-term girlfriend. So it, it, that does make it easier or harder, depending on, on which way you look. But it just ruined my family. You know, my, my, I was taken away from my family for seven years. It is a sort of bereavement for them. You know, I'm no longer about for that short time, although they can still come and see me. And just seeing the impact that it had on my mother, my grandparents, um, and just seeing how I upset everyone. And it, it was my fault. You know, all right, I, I didn't know there was drugs in there, but if I wasn't a fucking criminal, it wouldn't have happened. You know, I, I put myself on that ladder and then I fell off it. It's my own fault, you know. There's And people often overlook that. The individual criminal can often overlook the impact it has on people that, that love them as yeah. opposed to what they're doing. Yeah. And, yeah, so it was it was my fault in, in what happened, you know. As I say, if I hadn't been involved in crime, I wouldn't have got involved with this particular instance. And, yeah, that's why I wanted to turn myself around. Because I saw the impact. What about the, the, the mental health? You say that it, it, it's had quite an impact on your mental health. What do you mean by that? Um, well, you know yourself that being in that confined area, there's not much empathy in there. You know, it's, it's really hard to find that person. You can go and sort of talk from the heart without him talking to someone else and then, you know, this sort of rumour going around, you know. But I was so lucky that I found a couple of those guys while I was in jail. Um, who are still my friends to today, you know. And, yeah, I've, I've always been a very sort of emotional type of person. Although I was, as I say, I was I was violent to an extent. I've always been the person that friends come and speak to. I've always worn my heart on my sleeve. You know, I've always been, I always talk about feelings, if you like. You know, I've always spoken about my state of mind. You know, if, if I'm not feeling too good, I would mention it to, to friends and that in the hope that they would start, being like that as well, because, you know, as you know, it's it's best for for especially men to, to speak about their mental health. And I've always tried to pull that out of people, which is what I've done in jail as well. Um, because if you're helping someone with their mental health, it has the adverse effect is, or the, the, um, the magnetic effect is that it's helping you as well, you know. That's such a positive thing to, to, to hear and, and a good thing to share. Tell me about the art then. So we got to the point where you started to message people on the outside and and, and were reflecting on what you'd read on the back of that postcard or whatever it was that was being used as a marker in that book. And you discovered that what you were critically criticising as as a load of rubbish in terms of Damien Hirst and, and other artists you discovered that there was more to it than that. Where did that lead to then? So you're in the art class. You've now discovered you have a talent for, for art, um, but you were also reflecting on other people's art. What happened next? Where did it lead to? Well, I wrote to all of those artists, and it, it was like 32 artists I wrote to, figuring that one of them would would reply, you know. What, 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 what was you asking them at the time? What were you it writing was, to them and it saying? It was pretty much the same letter, and it was saying, I've just discovered conceptual art, your artwork in the Sensations catalogue. There's nothing like that in the prison library. Um, I'm doing an art course. I've fallen in love with art. Um, I'm doing this art course that I want to progress further. Could you send me some information on your work and career? And I always put a little caveat at the bottom that sort of means nothing really, but I said, if it's of any consequence... My offence was neither sexual or violent, in the hope that they didn't think I was some sort of crazy rapist, you know. Although me just writing that at the bottom isn't, um, you know, doesn't mean a thing. But I thought if I'm writing to all of these artists, one of them will reply. And several days later, I got a parcel through the post from two very famous artists um, who were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time called Sarah Lucas and Angus Fairhurst. I was over the moon. 
The next day was another artist called um, Gavin Turk, who is, you know, mega famous in the art world. You know, now they're world-renowned. And they just... Just, they, just tell me first, what was in the parcel, the first one you oh, got? Then it was, it was a, a letter from them. It was catalogues on their work, like books on their work, brochures. And then they said, oh, we'll send you more when we have another show. And then that's what the other one was. And then they kept turning up and turn. You know, if you speak to, to Michael, your co-defendant, he'll tell you how crazy it got in the end. They was just turning up day after day. And I'm replying to say thank you. And then they're sending more weeks later, you know. And then throughout my sentence, I had all of these artists just writing to me every now and then. How's things? How are you doing? Here's some more info. And they're sort of like pushing me towards a degree, which I got by the time I left jail. And was you sharing with these artists your your work? I mean, were you able to because you were in prison? So what you were creating, was you able to get that out for them to see? Or did there come a time when they were able to see your work? When some artists were asking me questions, I'd sort of, it was more, um, it wasn't visual so much. You know, it was, I'll be telling them about my artwork. But there was, there was one artist called Gary Hume, who is, you know, he was like Turner Prize nominated. He's like sent me in a little artwork that I had hanging up in my cell. And like now that would have been worth thousands, you know. What do you do with it? Where is it? What do you do with uh, it? Well, when I was doing this big art project a few years ago, I sold it to finance the art project. So it was, I figured he'd be okay with it, you know, because it's, it's going back into the art world to make art, you know. But, um, yeah, I had these artists sending stuff to me. I'm, I'm writing to them. Um, I'm still close friends with many of them now, all these years later. And I, as I say, I didn't know where they were in the art world, how, you know, how far up the art ladder they were. And now pretty much all of them are at the top. They're world-renowned artists that could show their work in any gallery in the world, you know. And do they still help you? I mean, they inspired you by writing back to you and encouraging you in, in, in pursuing your love for art. But, you know, there come a time when you, you got to the end of your sentence. You've now got, what, a degree in art or you need to get out? Well, and- I, st- I started my degree just a few weeks before my sentence finished. So I went from one institution straight into another, uh, which was hard on its own. But, yeah, so I'd done another three years at uni, then went on to start a master's, which I then had to stop because a baby came along. Whoa. Yeah, exactly. So I couldn't afford both. Can't put kids on eBay. So I had to give up the the MA. And I sort of threw my toys out the pram a little bit and had nothing to do with art for a few years, then got back into it via... Um, an artist called Tracy Emming, who I bumped into, she gave me a bit of a bollocking for... As you do, yeah. Tracy Emming being one of the most world-renowned exactly, artists, yeah. um, you, you know, condoms on floors, unmade beds, etc. Et, et I mean, I love art, and I, I myself developed quite a talent for it while while I was in prison. You know, it was such a great escape, you know, so, so I really resonate with a lot of what you say. So... So how do you describe yourself now, Gary? I mean, you're obviously, you're out, you've got your own family and, and children, and, and you're an artist. I'm an artist, a curator, so I put on art exhibitions as well. Um, the first big show that I'd done um, in 2016, again, I contacted these some of these artists who had wrote to me in prison and said, look, I've got this idea. It, it was going to be a big show, well out of my league, the idea that I had. I wrote to them and said, what do you think on this idea? And they said, not only is it a great idea, I'll be on board with it with you. And that was Sarah Lucas. You know, she'd give me an 18 grand artwork. I was damaging art that artists were donating to me. That was the the process. Because I'm a conceptual artist now. The one that, the, the rubbish art that I thought years ago, I'm now one of those because I fell in love with that. Hold on. Just, just, for, just for people who don't, I, I love art, but the terminology kind of loses me. What is a conceptual artist? Well, conceptual art is the, it's more about the idea. The, the artwork you're looking at represents an idea that isn't necessarily an artwork as such. So uh, if, if you was trying to um, show anger for instance you might get a load of wire and screw it up into a ball and that looks angry you know you're trying to it's a 3d representation of an idea that's all that conceptual artwork is so people have to buy into the idea of the artwork first 
And that is the, the best way that you can represent that idea. And that's why you talked about the Palestinian artists who, exactly. you know, right, it makes real sense. So so you approached or reached out to these artists, now you're out and you're about to sort of embark on your own exhibition, and they were sending you thousands of pounds worth of art that you were destroying? Is that what you just said? Well, it was it was to do with the change of identity, because I had my identity changed by these people who put me away. And I was wondering that because of their intervention on me, am I worth less as a person because of they put me into prison or am I worth more as a person now? Because now I'm, I've had a 180 degree change in life and I'm now an artist. So did going to prison, did them putting me in prison have a adverse effect or a positive effect? You know, and like we said earlier, would we be in this position if we hadn't been set up, you know? So that's, that's the question I'm asking. Am I a better person on the whole or am I, you know, is it, had too much of a bad effect on me. And rather than me do that, I was using these artworks as a, a metaphor for me. You know, someone's donating me an artwork and I'm damaging it as them persons have damaged me. Um, and then I'm putting that artwork for sale again. And if it reaches its normal value, which it was before my intervention, then it's it's not had a, a bad effect. If it goes for less than if the sale price is less than what it was, then it's had a, a bad effect, you know. And um, I had Sarah Lucas um, give me an 18 grand artwork to damage. That was the biggest one. The others were sort of like around about f- f- within the, the mid hundreds to to a thousand or so, you know. But it was these massive names in the art world, as well as um, Noel Fielding um, donated something for me. And also Vic Reeves, and I damaged some of their artwork as well. And we were selling all the artwork, and I figured, well, um, where can the money go? Does it go back to the artist? Do I have any of the money? You know, because I've, I'm now a part of the artwork, you know. But what we decided was, or what I decided was, I got in touch with, do you know Katie Piper, the girl who was attacked with acid? So... No one's, on the whole, no one's really interested. As much as I've got a good story, no one's really interested with this bloke from Essex, you know, who's changed his life around because of an arrest. That's it's a good story, but it's not, as it doesn't grip, you know. But Katie Piper, she's had her identity changed at the hands of another, you know, but visual identity. She was a model, and now she's had that happen to her. And, and her, like us, if she hadn't been attacked like that, would she have the gravitas that she's got at the moment? You know, or, or would she still be a, an, an ex-model, if you like, you know? Um, so I contacted her. We had a chat about this. Um, I said, can we donate it to your charity? She loved the idea. So for free exhibitions, we donated it all to, to the Katie Piper Foundation. That was a very kind gesture. What What I'm burning to know is that when... When you have a relationship with these renowned artists, these world-renowned artists who make millions from what they do, how does someone like you benefit? I mean, you obviously, you just talked about them donating art and that was able to to sort of further your artistic uh, creativity, etc. But is that as far as it goes or do they inspire you to keep on doing what you, you do? Do they give you a platform so that you can show your ability, your creativity, or is that too much to ask? I just wonder what more you can get as an artist, former prisoner, now artist, out of these people who who don't have the backstory that you have. So I think when you talk about, you know, I've got a story, it's interesting and it's good, but it's not as powerful, I, I, I beg to differ because I think you've lived an experience that very few people have. I mean, yeah, there are... 80,000, 90,000 prisoners here in the UK, across the world, it's probably about 10 million, but there are billions of people in the world. So you have a personal experience and journey that is more valuable in terms of life experiences than Tracy Emin, as far as I know. That's not undermining her her personal experience, but you have a value, I think. So do they help you in any other way? Um, Well, just by... being associated with them and being able to call on them for a bit of help, a bit of guidance. I mean, it's like if you're a singer and you want to sort of ask Ed Sheeran, you know, a question. 
and if you've got Ed Sheeran's backing, you know, if you're a musician and, and Ed Sheeran's going, yeah, he's a he's a good guy, you know, he's a good he's a good artist, a good performer. That reflects that that's more than than they can give if they were helping me on physically helping me with an artwork. I mean, just yesterday, for instance, one of the first artists I ever wrote to before I wrote to that lot, um, uh, an artist called Ray Richardson from South East London. I was in his studio with him yesterday because just having a catch up. But 25 years later, we're still close friends. And I'm feeling a bit shit, as we all are in this environment of lockdown. And just before it comes out, just to get a little bit more of a little bit more vigour in, in life, just being around other artists, which you can't do at the moment, just give him a bell. Said, like, you know, all right to pop down. We haven't met each other for a while. You go down there, you walk out, you're inspired again. You know, you're raring to go to make some more art just for a, an hour's conversation with someone, you know. Brilliant. What does the future hold for you, Gary? I mean, what's your ambition? What, what what are you doing at the moment? I know it's a struggle for everybody, as you just mentioned, and looking for those moments of inspiration. But but what does the future hold? What what are you doing? I know you've got your own podcast as well. Is that talking about art? It is. It's called Ministry of Arts, and I just speak to a different artist every week. Sometimes it's the guys that I've spoke spoke of, Turner Prize winners, world famous artists. Other time it'd be a homeless guy using art to get himself off the streets and anyone in between that, you know. But I'm I'm now on the board of um, Kersler Arts, um, which is a, a, the the biggest prison arts charity in the country. Um, I won. I won. I've, um, I've, yeah, I've won a couple off there myself I, as well. I won. And I, I remember it, it's so interesting, actually, because I... I did this being in prison for a crime I didn't commit the the perpetrators being two white and one black and I did this piece of art where half the face I did it chalk in chalk actually and I I like kind of abstract art that was my thing and I remember doing this this piece you know it took me about 5 minutes but it was that I suppose it's close to that conceptual art because it was a moment of inspiration where I you know I was angry and I did this half a face um in black chalk with this kind of really piercing eye and on the other side was white chalk so you had this kind of um bit like yin yang that's kind of the black and the white and I remember seeing it on the Costa magazine the front page of the Costa magazine and at that moment I felt so proud of the fact that I had created a piece of art out of my internal anger that someone saw value in. It wasn't financial value, but it was value that it it expressed something. And I, I really love that idea. So, yeah, I know what Costler is about and thought I'd share that. No, and, and, and that is what it does to everyone who gets involved with it. It's an absolute beautiful charity. Um, so I'm on the board of that. I've got contacted by another artist who had a, um, a program made about her on Sky Arts and she was telling the producers about me and they've contacted me and said, would I like a documentary made about me? And that was only a few weeks ago. So that's, it may well come of nothing, but I've said, yes, we've started the, the ball rolling and they're just going to do something there possibly in the new year. And that's only an absolute possibility, you know, um, but it's a quite a big feed to my ego. That's for sure. I'm still producing artwork, although it's gone down a lot during lockdown. Well, 2020, you know, it's, it's taken a, a nosedive on sales. I'm not producing any art shows this this year because the art shows, are well, the, the galleries are closed. So we've got our hands tied a little bit, but I'm doing work in, um, like I've got a project to, to put forward for Lewis Prison at the moment. that Someone else has asked me to get involved in to put a, a project to the guys in there to give them a little challenge and they do this challenge from a different artist every week. And I'm one of those artists. So I get pulled into a lot of stuff to do with mental health, crime and justice. Yeah. That, that, that's what I, I get involved with a lot. And how do you feel about that? Because it's the easy and obvious one, isn't it? Because you yourself have done time, turned your life around whilst you're doing time, although you should be and are recognized now as an artist first, prisoner second you know or former criminal whatever you want to look at but you know you've got to put the artist before the former prisoner um how do you feel about being drawn back into working inspiring other prisoners and prisons and and you know do you not want to escape that and move forward and sort of say I want to leave that all behind although it's created the person I am today I want to move on I did I did and, and for a few years that's exactly what, what I wanted to do 
But then one of those little times on reflection, I'm sitting there and I thought, well, if it wasn't for prison, I wouldn't be the man I am. So I sort of owe a little something to prison and to me. And it art changed my life. And it, it isn't just art itself. It's people on the outside who you don't know, just giving you a bit of empathy to this stranger, you know, and that's what I found. And then I figured that um, if I could do that, if I could be that vessel of, of good for someone else, just how amazing would that be? Because all of them artists that wrote to me, when I think about them on them little quiet times, I get quite emotional, you know, because without them giving me that bit of trust, that stranger in prison, I wouldn't be here. I, my kids, I've got really good kids. They're, they're nice. They're polite. They're the kids that I wish I was, you know, but they would have been young versions of me if it wasn't for these people, for these strangers. And they're not kids like me. They're kids like my other half, you know, who's a, who's a really nice, decent person. So I've broke the chain and it's not going to affect them, you know. So my dad was criminal, you know, and, and going back, going back, we've always had that criminal element and I've broke that chain. My kids aren't going to suffer from this fucking addiction that is crime, you know. They're not going to be that. They're going to be, whatever happens to them in life, they're not going to be around people like I used to be. They're not going to have, have to go and visit prisons, you know, for their mates or have their mates come and visit them in prison. That's gone. I've broke that chain. So that's the main thing. But if I can do that to someone else, like, you know, I'll go into prisons and give talks, give um, art workshops. I, I did do, you know, obviously you can't now, but, and I always get such a good response, you know. And um, again, and I know it's an old cliche, but if it just ch makes one person think differently, then fucking brilliant, you know. I've had messages on social media from someone that was in one of them talks a few years ago saying he's at college now. And, you know, he, he took the time to wrote to me. It isn't art that he's doing, but it was my talk that made him want to fucking do something different other than crime. And I, I don't remember him, but that don't matter. You know, someone else has changed their life because of me, and it's a fucking beautiful thing. Oh, sorry, I keep swearing. It, it's great to hear you talk the way you talk. I think your testimony is is very powerful, and people can hear and, uh, and see that. Well, I say hear and see. People can hear that. My final question is powerful testimony, but where can people who are now really keen to see your art, how can they see your art? Where can you point them to so they can go and see what you, you, you visualise? Well, at the moment, it's just on Instagram. Is, is the main place. And is that Gary Mansfield or, or how? It is called Mizog Art, M-I-Z-O-G-A-R-T. But yeah, if you put in Gary Mansfield, you'll find it. There's a website called Ministry of Arts that is selling my work. You can see it on there. Yeah, that, that's where you, can, where you can see it at the moment. Good. Well, I'm sure lots of people will. Gary, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. I think it's fascinating and interesting. I didn't know your backstory. You, you, you know, we had contact through Instagram and you mentioned that you'd been inside. We never met each other when, when I was in Swellside, though. No, I got in Swellside in 95. I wasn't aware you were there. Michael, obviously, was there. I, I went on... I was in Swalside for a, I, I was in Swalside on two spells. Once when I was on hunger strike and I was hospitalised and put in Swalside Hospital, and another time I was on a little bit of a lie down because I was much more volatile than Michael. I, th I think you may have been in Maidstone at the time when I was there, uh -huh. and I've got to say, like Michael, I fucking love Michael. He's is. <laughs> He's a, as annoying as he is funny, as he is lovable. He's just a great person. And I, I know he's your, your co-defendant, but I got on so well with Michael. I went to his wedding. I don't suppose you was at his wedding, was you? I was away at the time, actually. I was out of the country. Uh, well, I went to his wedding. And I spoke to him just a, a few months ago after a long time of not speaking. But I've, just before we go, I'd just like to say this. That means nothing to you. You're not aware of this. I cried three times in prison. Once was over my effect on my family, like, you know, what I'd done to my family once was when I'd sort of had this change that I was, I realized, I had the realization while I was in there that I'm no longer a criminal. I'm now a destined artist. And I had a little teary moment there. 
And the third time was when you got acquitted and Michael didn't come back to swell. I'm getting a bit emotional now saying it. But, you know, Michael going out that day with that big bag of belongings and when he didn't come back, it was fucking beautiful. I was so proud that he didn't return and that I didn't see him again for years, you know. But that was that was beautiful. Well, thanks for saying that, man, because I'm sure there were lots of other prisoners who, who kind of felt the same, especially given the rocky ride that we'd been given, uh, especially nearer the end where we were back and forth and we weren't sure whether we were going to win, but we have. And look, on that note, it's been great talking to you, Gary. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for sharing those three moments of of tears, oh. uh, including watching us walk out of the court. Of the and field. you deserve all the good that comes to you, my man. And so do you, my friend. So good luck. Good luck with your art. And I hope people do go and have a look at what, what, what you do, because I'm sure they'd be fascinated. Thanks very Splendid. much, Gary, for sharing your Thank time. Thank you, Raphael. Tell mate. Please follow and subscribe to the podcast. It really will help keep the podcast going. Tell your friends to follow and listen too. And if you haven't already listened to previous episodes, I suggest you do because they're really worth a listen. The aim is to upload a new episode with a new guest every week on Wednesday. If you know of someone I should be getting on the podcast, drop me a line. This episode was produced by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions and the cover design work is by Studio Minerva. And of course, your host, me, Raphael Rowe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.